0: Consider the GlobalX Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principle. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at GlobalXETFs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by
1: SEI Investments Distribution Co. Hello and welcome to Battleground Ukraine with me, Patrick Bishop, and Saul David. Well, this week we've seen more manoeuvring as Russia prepares to defend the territory it holds in eastern Ukraine against Ukraine's expected counter-offensive. Now, that involves sackings and promotions at the top, and an announcement that T-14 Armata tanks, the most sophisticated they've got, are being sent to the battlefield.
0: There's also been an assessment from the Ukrainian side that the Russians have given up hope of taking any more territory and, apart from continuing their operations around Bakhmut, are now thoroughly on the defensive. That would seem to be borne out by British intelligence reports that Russian casualties have declined by a third in the last month.
1: Yeah, now this is mostly coming from Major General Kirillo Budanov, the head of the intelligence directorate at the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense, and he said uh, Putin's forces have completely switched to positional defense everywhere. The only places on the front line, he says, where they're making attempts are in the in Bakhmut and Avdivka attacking from the north and there's localized fighting in uh, the town of Marinka. But uh, he says that they haven't changed their tactics. They're just doing what they're trying to do in Bakhmut, which is to wipe the settlements off the face of the earth. That's where they, they're doing... Their way of doing things. Now, Budanov did reference the Ukrainian upcoming counterattack. He didn't give any details. On, that's hardly surprising. But he did say it would be a landmark battle in Ukraine's history. Well, that's setting the bar quite high. Well, Saul, I think we've done quite enough speculation on that front. So let's just wait and see. they think no, no further kind of speculations about when, where, and how it might come.
0: No, I mean there are even the odd hints, Patrick, that actually it's already begun with these uh the this sort of counter battery fire on the eastern bank of the Dnipro. But but anyway, we'll we'll update next week as we see how that turns out. Budanov, um, Budinov, uh, you mentioned, he did go on to do a bit of speculation of his own about saying that Putin and his military must be facing a lot of pressure at home as heavy losses fail to stack up to any major gains in what was originally presented, as we all know, and is still being presented uh, as a special military operation that implies short termism. I quote now, against the backdrop of the lack of success elsewhere, they face the problem that even their deceived society needs to see something, some kind of
1: victory. Yeah, deceived is a good word, isn't it, for the way that uh, the Russian state propaganda works. So we've already seen some optics from the Russian side trying to create some positive propaganda. And that's um, this announcement about they're sending T-14 Armada tanks uh, rolling towards the battlefield as as we speak, which they claim are more than a match for the challengers, leopards and Leclercs that have been sent by Britain, Germany, Poland and France. Now, these um, armadas have been around for a while, as their designation would suggest. They went into production in 2015. They claim to have all sorts of refinements. Uh, It's meant to be the first invisible tank because it's supposedly undetectable uh, by radar emissions, etc., on the battlefield. It's also um, much better protection for the crew than on the old kit. There's no one actually inside the turret, and they actually the crew sit in an isolated armoured capsule uh, in the front of the hull, which would be good news for the men inside. But this begs the obvious question, doesn't it, Saul, of if they're so great, uh, why haven't they used them before? Well, they sound
0: good in theory, don't they? Uh, But uh, that might really be all there is to it, uh, talk. They were meant to be part of Putin's big $250 billion military upgrade programme. But the Armata has been 11 years in development uh, and the whole programme for... Building them has been dogged with delays, reduction in planned fleet size, and reports of manufacturing problems. Apparently, one even broke down during a parade in Moscow. It's also larger and heavier than other Russian tanks, which could pose logistical problems. And there don't seem to be many of them tens. Rather than hundreds. So the question is, can they take on Western MBTs? Uh, My opinion, Patrick, I very much doubt it. Apparently, they're not being used in the front line, but rather for indirect fire. And another alarming report is that they've had extra armour fitted to their flanks, which hardly inspires confidence. My feeling is that they'll play a relatively negligible role in the battles to come.
1: Right now, what about these uh, command changes? The one that struck me as the most interesting concerned this Admiral uh, Sergei uh, who was but is no longer the commander of the Russian Pacific Fleet, uh, mill bloggers are saying he was removed when he tried to prevent more of his special marine units, elite, highly trained units supposedly, being thrown into the Ukraine battle. Now, if, if we think back to February, do you remember that story it's all about the, I think it was 155 Special M- Marine Brigade. It lost 600 dead in, in in February in what was effectively a massacre, which was widely publicised on the Ukrainian side. So, you know, it does seem highly likely that any decent commander would say, you're not having any more of my guys if you can't use them properly. But the official line, of course, is that he's going into honourable retirement after, you know, some lifetime of good service. I don't know which to believe. I'd like to believe it's the former.
0: (laughs) Yeah, um, he's not the only casualty of the Vuladar battle, actually, Patrick. Um, a- another big name is Colonel General Rustam Muradov. I mean, we've mentioned it before, but we've now had absolute confirmation from the Kremlin that he's been uh, sacked as commander of the Eastern Military District. Why he was sacked has come from a mill blogger uh, linking it to the disastrous offensive around Vuladar. Another guy forced into early retirement is General Alexander Dvornikov, who's said to have commanded all Russian forces in Ukraine in April of last year. And according to the same mill blogger, the Kremlin is now relying on the newly reappointed commander of airborne forces. Needless to say, he had earlier been sacked, Colonel General Mikhail Teplinsky, to achieve decisive results. Well, good luck with that. I should add that Teplinsky is close to Brugosian, the Wagner boss. But the big point here is that the constant churn of senior commanders is not a sign that things are going well.
1: And there's the kind of uh, confusion on the battlefield seems to be intensifying on on the kind of private military contractor front. So we've had all these shenanigans with Wagner and Prigozhin. And now added to the mix, uh, he's now complaining about these other PMCs, private uh, military contractors. There's one called Redoute, uh, which is now kind of apparently sending men in there and, you know, inevitably there's friction between them and the and the Wagner people and, on top of that, perhaps with the, the regular army. Although, just to confuse the picture further, this Redoute outfit seems to be connected to Gazprom, you know, the huge state energy company, uh, and it actually operates under the Ministry of Defence. So so it all adds to the general picture of, of disorganisation. But uh, having said that, I don't want to get over-optimistic op- about what's going to happen next, but it would seem to me that it's less necessary to have, you know, a uh, smoothly running, Battle machine when you're in defence and when you're actually on the offensive. So maybe they can ride this out.
0: Well, uh, a bit optimistic in my view. I mean, I think the first important point to make about the disarray uh, among the Russian senior commanders and this constant churn is that it's not happening uh, in the Ukrainian army. Um, we've actually got a question on the identity of you know some of the key players, uh, which we'll come on to. So I won't I won't repeat that now. But it is interesting that most of the senior people have been in position from before. Uh, the war started. And, you know, generally speaking, Patrick, if we go back to the Second World War, when things aren't going well, there's a constant churn. We've mentioned that before in the desert. Also, Hitler's commanders started to be sacked when things weren't going so well on the Eastern Front. Uh, when you keep the same guys, it's because you're happy with their performance. And uh, I think there's good reason for the Ukrainian politicians, uh, Zelensky and others, to be very happy with the performance of their senior guys.
1: On that point, we know more about the Russian commanders than we do about the Ukrainian ones, don't we? Which is, quite an extraordinary state of affairs. For example, how many people could actually name the head of the uh, Ukrainian Armed Forces? It is, in fact, Valery Zaluzhny, who's very kind of uh, camera shy. He gives the odd interview, but uh, he's very self-effacing. And I think that's a deliberate policy where they're focusing the world's attention on the president, Mr. Zelensky, and not allowing uh, the picture to be diluted uh, by introducing other characters into the picture, no matter how much uh, they might actually deserve the credit for what is going on. When the war ends, it might be a different matter. But I think the time being, that's a good way of handling their sort of inf- information strategy.
0: Yeah, I think it's also partly down to national character, actually, Patrick. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't know the absolute ins and outs or, of whether this is fairly typical, but you kind of get a sense that, you know, and we heard this from the, the big interview on Wednesday, there's a kind of steely determination among Among Ukrainians, but their senior commanders are just professionals getting on with their job. It's not about a personality cult. It's not a kind of Montgomery pattern scenario, where there's a lot of ego and ability, but a lot of ego, too. You just get the idea that these guys are cool professionals going about their business. And and obviously, as the weeks develop, the next few weeks, we'll see how accurate that assessment is.
1: Funny you should mention uh Patton there, Saul, because we got a uh, an image was sent to us by Emir Krupic, who featured last week. He's um one of our listeners from the former Yugoslavia originally, now living in Ukraine. And he sent us an image of um George Patton, uh, General George Patton doing the rounds on the internet, apparently, this this image, accompanied by his quote, famous or infamous according to taste, that uh, quote, the Russian has no regard for human life and is an all-out son-of-a-bitch barbarian and chronic drunk. This was said, I think, in about 1944, 1945. Um, I actually looked up the, the original quote, and it's um, it's a bit fuller than that. It, the, the whole quote actually says uh, what we don't do, I'm just paraphrasing, uh, when we consider Russians, is that uh, we don't remember they're not European, but they're Asiatic. And I'm quoting now, therefore thinks deviously. We can no more understand a Russian than a Chinaman or a Japanese. And from what I've seen of them, I have no particular desire to understand them except to ascertain how much lead or iron it takes to kill them. Uh, And then it goes on to that Russian quote. So I think that tells a hell of a lot about George Patton. He's one of these people that you kind of want on your side in battle, uh, but you certainly don't want him anywhere near peacetime policy. And there were a few of those in the American military at that time. I'm thinking of uh, Curtis LeMay, you know, the Air Force General, who was as bloodthirsty as Patton, if not more, Douglas MacArthur. They were sort of megalomaniacs, and you know, the antithesis of, thank God, the man who was in charge, Dwight Eisenhower, uh, who I believe you're actually kind of researching at the moment, aren't you, Saul?
0: I am. I'm not going to go into the full details of the of the book itself, but uh, I'm currently, believe it or not, in Abilene, kansas at the eisenhower library or at least i have been for the last couple of days just finished research here um i mean i really am in the middle of nowhere they've still got a kind of makeshift western town uh high street where complete with jail and saloon and apparently while bill hickok uh you know at the height of his fame in the late nineteenth century, was the sheriff here, which will give you a sense of the kind of potential lawlessness <laughs> that there was in Abilene. But yeah, I mean, Ike, a completely different character, and the reason he was so good—not a battlefield commander, as we probably mentioned before on the on the show—but a but a brilliant kind of operator, brilliant political general who who could keep everyone in order. I mean, he he wasn't, you know, incapable of detail himself. He worked, of course, for the Americans in the operations section of the War Department. Um, so he knew about planning. Uh, he was very good at that side of things, but actually tactically controlling troops in battle where there were elements of the early fighting in Tunisia, particularly during Kasserine, where he probably put a foot or two wrong. But after all, it was his first uh, time in charge of, you know, large numbers of troops. But slowly but surely, he got his act together. And so did the Americans for that matter. But yes, Patton was was great in battle. They used to bring him in when things were going badly wrong, but he kept putting his foot in it. And I think you're absolutely right, Patrick. a, A man with some pretty dubious views about the world but it is interesting that quote about about the russians it, it certainly is
1: yeah of course he he went on to say patton that they fought the wrong enemy and it should have been the inference being that they should have been going after the the soviets uh he was actually you know surprisingly kind of forgiving about the nazis and i think a lot of people have seized on that you know why didn't they go all the way as pan has suggested in after taking berlin of course that would have been completely impossible for all sorts of geopolitical reasons but uh, we won't go into that sounds like where you are uh, in abilene is what the uh, in the balkans they would call vuko jebina vuko which means where wolves copulate i.e. the middle of nowhere I used to hear that a lot uh, when we were covering the uh, the Balkan Wars back in the early 90s.
0: Brilliant, Patrick, I'll remember that. Okay, that's all we have time for now. Join us after the break when we'll try and answer as many questions as possible.
1: Welcome back. Uh, we're now going to go through some of your questions. Some really interesting topics been thrown up this week. Uh, we're going to start off with one from Andrew Roberts, not our old friend Andrew Roberts, I don't think, because he says, well, he's from the UK. He's living in South Korea. He says, uh, hi, Saul and Patrick. I have a question about trench warfare tactics. Given the First World War was over 100 years ago, have military tacticians worked out a way for a deadlock to be broken in the trenches? Well, I'll start off on this all because I've just seen some very interesting footage from uh, reporting from Ukraine. That's brilliant. Website You can see on YouTube, which we've referenced a few times before. And uh, this latest report is from the Kremove sector of the Bakhmut Front. And it's showing a, an infantry, or describing an infantry attack on some, uh, just this, some, some Russian trenches. And what's fascinating is that before the attack goes in, apparently the tactic is to send in drones that deliver just, you know, li- literally hand grenades into the trenches, but with great accuracy. And then they're followed up by suicide drones, and then the infantry arrive to actually clear out the trenches and uh, take care of anyone who's still still there. So that's one very kind of um, you know clever, it seems to me, uh, use of new technology overcoming this problem of, of taking a trench, which you know if it's, if it's probably defended before these drones came along, it, it could have, could be a much bloodier, more costly exercise.
0: Yeah. And, and you know, actually the means of, of capturing trenches hasn't really changed that much, uh, Patrick, since the early days. So the question is, yes, they have uh, developed stuff like the drones, but it's still a question of softening up the defenders with artillery fire and then going in with as much protection as possible, which is what the armoured vehicles and the tanks are for. Uh, you suppress any strong points. You use uh, engineers to bridge the, the trenches if they're particularly broad. I mean, some of them will be small enough for the tanks to just roll straight over the top of, uh, probably crushing one or two people in Inside, in you know, a kind of horrific consequence for infantrymen. But you know, there is going to be a lot of this in the weeks to come. Uh, and I suspect these these relatively thin trench lines that have been dug. We're not talking about the sophisticated trench lines of the First World War. Are not going to prove to be that big an obstacle for some of the Ukrainian armor, the all arms brigades that we've been promised are about to go into action. Okay, we've got a, a nice question from Denmark. That's Martin Anderson. He asks. In the war, we've seen plenty of urban fighting, latest in the ongoing battle of Bakhmut. But with the Ukrainian offensive coming out, what are the chances that their offensive is going to center around cities? It seems costly for Ukraine to be fighting in such places. And is that likely, he's really asking. Well, I think there's a quick answer to that. And no, it's not likely. I mean, the interesting thing about the the urban fighting is that the Uh, Russians seem determined to take cities as a kind of symbolic value. But in in terms of strategy, they don't have a lot of use. What you really want to do is bypass cities. And, you know, then they come under siege and you starve them out, but you don't actually reduce them to rubble and you don't assault them. So I suspect what the uh, Ukrainians are going to be doing in the weeks to come is by looking for the thin crust, looking for the weak positions, and they're not going to be in the cities. So they will bypass a lot of these cities uh, or at least, get to the cities and seal them off. That seems to be the most likely scenario.
1: Yeah, we said we weren't going to uh, speculate, but we can't stop us, can we? Now, I'm just going to uh, read this out from David Gale from Woking in the UK. And he's going back to um, something we mentioned a little while ago about the fact that the UK is sending seeking helicopters to Ukraine. And we were both talking about it. And uh, we were stumped trying to think of an aircraft that was still in service after that length of time, I mean, the Sea Kings go back at least I mean, probably 50 years. And he, David, says, I'm sure I'm not the only person who's contacted you to mention the B-52 Strato Fortress. The last one was produced in 1962. This is his giant American bomber. The last one was produced all those years ago. What's that? You know, we're coming up to... Uh, 60 years. 61 years ago. But with endless upgrades, he says to it, its power plants and avionics, the B-52 is set to remain in service into the 2050s, 100 years after it first flew. Well, that's, a, that's great for letting reminding us, well, I didn't know that, so um, well, I'd forgotten. So, yeah, thanks very much for pointing that out, David.
0: Okay, we've got a question here from John. Um, it's about prisoners of war. Do non-state combatants, i.e. Wagner, um, etc., enjoy the same protection under the Geneva Convention as regular troops? and if not... How could this be exploited by ukraine not quite sure what he means by exploited in terms of can can they get away with treating them worse I mean generally speaking we've made the point Patrick that Ukraine is treating its prisoners of war well but do you know where, where mercenaries come into the equation in a legal sense
1: well I think there's a you know there's something called the uh, law of armed conflict and that says that if you uh, you don't have to be a state soldier if you like to qualify for for the rules concerning prisoners, as stated by the 90, well, the 1949 Geneva Convention, I think is the relevant one. But to do that, so there are these criteria which allow for a fighting force which isn't a state force to uh, be properly treated. But for that, that fighting force has to fulfill certain criteria, uh, which means that it basically operates in a reasonably civilized way insofar far as that is possible in war. And I would argue that, that Wagner very definitely don't fall uh, within those criteria. But having said that, I haven't heard anything from Ukraine that they're not being accorded the same status when captured as a regular army Russian soldier would.
0: Okay, another interesting one from Joseph Kay. This is not uh, so much a question as a, as a kind of response to earlier comments we've made. He's a political economist, um, and he's interested in the magnitude of Western economic and military support for Ukraine, which has been and remains vital uh, for its survival against Russian aggression. Yeah, we agree with that. He says that on the podcast, it's often portrayed as the West as providing massive support, uh, and there's a serious risk of it declining. Absolutely true. We have made that point many times. In Joseph's view, he's not sure that's correct. As one economic historian, Adam Tooze, notes, Western support for Ukraine is very modest in a historical context. Only one country in the Western Alliance is spending more than 1% of GDP on bilateral commitments, and that's Estonia, while uh, the US spends a lower percentage of its GDP on this war than it did in the war in Afghanistan. So Joseph's broader point here is actually the West should be doing a lot more. We shouldn't be worrying about a decline. We should be encouraging it to spend more of its cash. He goes on to say Germany is only spending a third of what it spent as a percentage of GDP towards the 1991 Gulf War this would have substantial impacts on the conflict if it were realized and and, and the money was up. So this is really a call from Joseph to increase the spending because there are historical reasons why it could be a lot higher. Thanks so much for that, Joseph. That's a, a really interesting insight.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I completely agree with that. Got one here from Joe Hutchinson, who's a Brit living in the Netherlands. And he describes a conversation he had with a friend of his from Brazil, who he thought echoed the views of quite a lot of people in the Southern Hemisphere, I would say. And that is that while there is sympathy for Ukraine, there's also a great deal of hostility towards the United States. So the fact that the United States is so forcefully on the Ukrainian side is almost a reason, I'm extrapolating a bit from here what he's saying, um, a reason for being a sort of dubious and half-hearted in, in seeing it in the very sort of, well, I won't say black and white, but certainly very much right on one side and wrong on the other that we tend to uh, view it from. And so he's really saying with our eyes on the war in Ukraine and our support for the US's role, do you think it's easy for us as Westerners to lose sight of the damage that's been done by American interventionism over the years and its impact on today's geopolitical climate? Well, I I, I do sympathize with the, the view that your friend is expressing. Having seen, you know, up close the the effects of American intervention in the second Gulf War and in Afghanistan. They certainly didn't leave Iraq or Afghanistan better than they found it, which surely is the point of any intervention. Um, I think it was in the case of Afghanistan, the whole point of the operation was this place to start off with. They could have very easily contained the Taliban uh, as indeed uh, happened with, with the first Gulf War, where the George Bush senior took the very sensible decision that the best policy was to contain uh, what was going on in there, to put uh, Saddam Hussein back in his books, if you like, and to leave the Iraqis to sort out their future by themselves. So the second Gulf War was absolutely disastrous, apart from the military success, very brief moment of uh, of satisfaction there for the Americans and everything that came after not just for them but for mostly for the people of iraq, and indeed the wider world was disastrous and continues to play a sort of malign role in the in the, in the politics of that region so yeah um I mean, I think that you'd probably agree with me Saul, but don't do so if you don't uh, one would say about Americans is that their you know intentions are often almost not invariably but you know frequently that they go into these places with the best intentions. And certainly in the 21st century interventions, those good intentions have very rarely actually come to uh, any sort of fruition.
0: Yeah, and exactly right. And, and we, we need to remember the times when they really did come up with the goods, the First and the Second World War. And also contrast it, Patrick, frankly, with the very bad intentions of this kind of ruthless aggression simply to take over territory that's been displayed of course, by the Nazis in the, in the Second World War and, and, and Russia now. So there is an important distinction, although we do get your broader point. Um, and thank you for making it. Well, I mentioned, uh, that someone had asked about the key figures apart from Zelensky, almost as though all we ever hear about is Zelensky. And you, you kind of back that up, Patrick, by saying the command is very much kept in the background. But, They are an impressive bunch. And I'm just going to name a couple of them. You mentioned Zoluzhny. He's actually commander in chief of the Ukrainian Armed Forces. So that's all their military, not just the army. There's another guy um, who's, I'd I'd never heard this name before, so he's hardly appeared in the press, Lieutenant General Sergei Shaptala. He's actually chief of the general staff. Now in our army, that of course would be the senior commander, but there's a kind of division of responsibility. He's obviously the chief admin guy uh, in charge of organization, whereas the tactical commander and strategic commander in the field or operational is Zeluzhny. And then, of course, he's got his subordinate commanders, one of whom, again, very highly regarded as a man called Alexander or Alexander Sersky. He's commander of the ground forces of the armed armed forces of Ukraine and commander of the Eastern Group. So Sersky is going to be absolutely crucial in the coming counteroffensive. And then you also mentioned him, uh, Patrick, uh, another guy who's regarded very highly, Kirillov Budenov, their chief of military intelligence. So these are the four key people. And as I said before, they've all been there since the before the war.
1: Quite so. I think we'll be hearing more about them uh, in the months to come. Um, so yeah, I think they're, they're, their personalities are beginning to kind of impact a, little, a wee bit on, on what we know and think about the war. Um, and I'm just going to answer one here from Jamie, who says, Dear Patrick and Saul, you go into explicit detail about Russian war crimes. And as we all know, in war crimes are committed by all sides so why don't you mention Ukrainian war crimes what is the reason for you only giving one side well it was me that was talking specifically about the crimes of the Wagner group last week um, and to answer you Jeremy I would say that uh, I think that, that yes of course there are crimes committed by the U- Ukrainians as you rightly say this ha- goes on in all war but I would say that the balance of atrocities is massively tilted towards the Russians. Uh, and there are reasons for this. One is, that we often go on about this, it's a very, very important point, which is that the Ukrainians are held to a higher standard than the Russians. Uh, Western support depends on them behaving in a civilized fashion as one can in war. And they're very aware of this. There have been occasions uh, when misdeeds have come to light. And that is because the reason they've they've actually seen the light of day is because there's independent media operating in Ukraine, which there absolutely isn't in Russia. Going back to the uh, Wagner war crimes, you may remember that last week, I mentioned some interviews that were given by returning Wagner personnel to a human rights organization in Russia called Gulagunet. Uh, Now, one of the uh, guys who gave evidence about murdering children, etc., in an interview to Gulagunet, uh, has now been arrested. And uh, there's no more detail than that. But I wonder whether he's being arrested for the crimes that he more or less admitted to or because he revealed them. Uh, The thing about Russia is that it could be either and we don't know.
0: Okay, that's all we have time for. Join us again next Wednesday for The Big Interview when we'll have another brilliant guest. And also, of course, Friday, when we'll be giving you the latest news and answering listeners' questions. Goodbye.